I don't know, is anybody having fun going through 1 Samuel? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty good stuff, isn't it? Uh, God's got a lot to say to us, and He continues to speak to us, even through words that were spoken thousands of years ago, written down thousands of years ago. Before we look at 1 Samuel, though, I want to ask you a simple question. And that question is this, what are you afraid of? Most people are afraid of something. Okay, I'm afraid of my wife. No, no, not really. No need to be afraid. Uh, she's, she's, she's really nice. I'm not really afraid of her. But there have been studies done to find out what it is that people are afraid of. For instance, for me, I'm a little claustrophobic. So if I get in tight spaces, um, I even, they, you know, in an MRI, man, it just drug me up. If you've got to slide me in that machine and hear all that thumping and that thing's right above my face, that, that's, that's rough for me. And so they actually did surveys, and here's one of them I want to share with you this morning done by Chapman University. And so we're going to do it kind of as a countdown, okay? We're going to count down the top 12 fears that are, were f- discovered by Chapman University. And so uh, number 12 is ghosts. People are, hey, people are afraid of ghosts. Now, that's probably not very many of you in here. I'm not really scared of ghosts. I really am not sure they exist, except perhaps for the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, but uh, that is a fear. Number 11, clowns. I would have thought that would have been, <laughs> I thought that would have been higher up on the list, clowns. But uh, folks are, seem to be afraid of clowns. Number 10 is darkness. Afraid of the dark, okay? A lot of kids are afraid of the dark. Some people never grow out of it. Some of you may hear just sleep with a nightlight on or the TV on or something because you really don't want it to be dark. Number nine, (laughs) zombies. Hey, listen, folks, it's 2018. There are so many zombie movies out. I guess now it has developed a fear of zombies. I am, listen, I'm not the least bit afraid of zombies, but evidently some people are. Number eight, strangers, okay? Again, this is, I think, a product of our culture that there is a fear now of strangers. Um, number seven, flying. Now, if they had flying zombies, that'd really be scary. But there are a number of people who are afraid of flying. They really don't like it. Some of them have to do it. Some of them avoid it at all costs. They will, um, who was it? I think it was John Madden, the football commentator and the previous coach. And, and he would travel by a, per, a bus. He would take, not a trailways bus, his own bus. But he would travel all the way across, across the country to do a football game because he was afraid of flying. Number six claustrophobia that's kind of the fear being in confined spaces um i'll tell you this real quick i was under the house trying to check some duct work that we had that uh, a few years back and i had the 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 doors to the crawl space propped open so it's fine i had a little light everything was cool and i needed something so i actually had sent nancy to the to the barn out behind our house to get a tool or something to come back and while she went I think she kicked the brick out. The door 
closed. And as soon as it closed, it wasn't the dark that got me. It was then being in that confined space. So, um, all right. Number five, blood or needles. Anybody got that one? Okay, a few of you don't like, don't like blood, don't like needles. Number four, a fear of drowning. I don't know anybody to be excited about that. But for some people, they list it as one of their greatest fears. Number three, they lumped a bunch of stuff into one category. Bugs, snakes, other animals. Anybody for bugs, snakes, or other animals? Okay, spiders. Okay, got it. Okay, we're closing in. Number two is the fear of heights. Fear of heights. Okay, I don't particularly, I'm not, yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, I, it, it, there's some things you're better off paying people to do, and if they got to get up on the top of the house or something, yeah, I, let me here take my money, just go. And then the number one fear. Anybody want to guess before they, they show it? Yeah. What? Yeah. Death. Speaking in public. Anybody else? What? The FBI. The FBI. This may be a special circumstance back here. May I have our security team please focus right back here. Okay. The number one fear is, and we had it correct over here, public speaking. So, hey, listen, when you had two kids come up here and speak into a microphone, that's a big deal because there are a lot of people who be scared to death come up in front of even all your friendly faces and speak. For me, this is not a big deal. I'm not particularly fond of tight spaces. Uh, I'm not particularly fond of heights, but this is not a problem. But for a lot of people, it is. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you. You may be able to see the graph up here. Uh, here's the, here is the chart, and you know, uh, ghosts and clowns and darkness down at the bottom and zombies down at the bottom, but public speaking is way over here. 25% of the people indicated that they were afraid of public speaking. And so that's, that would be the leader. So to me, I'm like, eh, big deal. But for a lot of people, it is a big deal. The Bible gives us two clear messages when it comes to fear. And the two clear messages are this. The first one is, fear not. The second one is, fear God. Those are two clear messages the Bible gives us. Fear not. That is, there's nothing in this world that you need to be afraid of. Nothing on that list that you need to be afraid of. And this is not some kind of false bravado. This is not some kind of manufactured courage. Do you know why you don't have to be afraid? We can go all the way back to the most well-known psalm, Psalm 23, which tells us, I will fear no evil because you are with me. For that reason, we have nothing to fear because we have a God, an eternal God, who is with us. But we are told to fear God. In other words, there's nothing on this earth we ought to fear, but we ought to fear God. We ought to understand the kind of God that we have. And here, this is is who he's not. He's not that grandfatherly figure that we picture up on a throne whose voice is that of Morgan Freeman. Okay, that, that's, that is not the God we worship. The book of Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And any time in the, in, the, in the scriptures that people encounter the presence of God, 
It is an awe-inspiring event. And they hit the deck. And so we need to understand that we worship the almighty God, the God who could speak and bring all things into creation, and the God who will one day bring all this that we know, all the tangible things that we know, will bring them to a close. The God who is large and in charge, and the God who has a plan for each and every life. So we're not to fear anything, but we're to have a healthy fear of God. Now, when we fear stuff, but we don't fear God, it messes up our decisions. We make some really, really dumb decisions when we fear the wrong thing. And that's where we are this morning in the story that we're going to have that deals with King Saul. He feared the wrong thing. And because he did, it led him to make some tragic decisions. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. We'll go through it as quickly as we can. I'm going to just kind of lace up my running shoes here to try to get down to the verses that I really want to highlight. So hopefully you'll be able to keep up. The verses will be on your screen this morning. Let's ask the Lord to help us to understand what he has to say today. Father, we do thank you for this word, for its power and its truth. And we pray that you will teach us today through it, that you will grow us through it, that you will challenge us through it. And Lord, on the other side of it, that we can come out rejoicing, and that we can come out committed, and we can come out unafraid. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Samuel 13, we're going to begin in verse 1. And it says that Saul lived for one year and became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel, I'll go dot, dot, dot. Let's go back to that because I just want to let you know up front Verse 1 is one of the most contested verses for Bible translators. They really don't know what to do with this. Because literally it says when Saul was one year old. And we know that's not right. And so translators have struggled with this verse. And so what I'm going to do for you today is just tell you, I'm not going to spend all that time going over that. I don't think it's that important because here's what it's trying to say. Early in Saul's kingship. That's what it's trying to say. Early in his kingship is when this happens. Verse 2. So he had reigned for two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Here's what it's saying. Okay, you remember they, they, they've all gathered. Saul is now forming, for the first time, a standing army in Israel. There had not been anything like that. There had been kind of a militia-type mentality, and that is when a crisis arose, God would raise up a leader. That leader would call the people together, and they would face that crisis. They would face that enemy. So Saul now, as king, has brought together 3,000 men who are going to form the, the beginning of a standing army in Israel. And he has 2,000 under his control in a place called Michmash. Don't you just love those names? And then his son Jonathan, his son Jonathan is in charge of 1,000 men. And the rest of the people that had gathered, Saul sent them home. 
Because they had to tend the fields. They had to take care of the flocks. They had to take care of the herds. They had to, they had to take care of the, the olive groves. They had to do all the, the work that needed to be done. They had to take care of their families. And so he sent them all back home to take care of life at home until they were needed and they'd be called again. All right, well, let's move on then. In verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, how, what, what does all this mean? Well, here's what's happened. Jonathan, it appears, we don't know this for a fact, but it appears that Jonathan has taken it on himself to attack a garrison of Philistines. There were soldiers there, perhaps 100. It could have been as many as, as 500. We really don't know the number in a, Philist, in a Philistine garrison, but there were a gathering of Philistine soldiers who were there in the land. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this time. Even though Israel had a king, and even though Israel had a land that is promised to them, there were no hard and fast boundaries that people really paid attention to. And the Philistines were a growing force. They were gaining more and more power. And they were infringing upon this territory of Israel. And they would send in not the full army, but they would send in raiders, these bands of soldiers, and they would go in and they would destroy and they would steal and they would do all kinds of things. And literally, the Philistines had Israel under their thumb. They were kind of what we would consider an oppressive government. As long as Israel didn't fight back and just put up with it, it was no big deal. But if Israel put up a fight, we'll see exactly what happens and Jonathan evidently chose to do away with this garrison of Philistines. He'd had enough of it. Perhaps they'd raided a town. Perhaps they had, who knows what they've done. But he has now attacked and defeated a garrison of Philistines. And, and it says, when the, and then the Philistines heard of it. In other words, word traveled. And they didn't like it very much. When they heard of this little uprising... They decided they were going to do something about it. They, it the, 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 what the people were hearing was that, that Israel has now become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. In other words, the Philistines are ticked, and they're going to they're retaliate. But they also heard something else. They heard it was Saul who defeated the Philistines. Interesting how word travels, isn't it? Now, this could have meant that Saul gave the order. We don't know. It's not indicated here. Or it could have simply meant that the people were giving credit to their king. After all, he's the new king. He deserves the credit. And so he gets the credit here. Saul, of course, he had sent out the trumpet call. He had said, hey, listen, it's coming, so you guys better come back to me. We're going to need help here because the Philistines are probably going to take revenge. If we move down to verse 5, and it says, In the Philistines, here's what the Philistines' reaction is. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. And here's what they brought. 30,000 chariots 
and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped at Michmash. Now, who was at Michmash? Saul. He ain't there no more. These troops started coming. He left. And, uh, and to the east of, of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the Philistines have come in force. If we looked at a map of the Middle East, obviously the Mediterranean Ocean is there, and the Philistines are right along the border of the, of, you know, with the, with the uh, Mediterranean Sea. They were a seafaring people, not so much for the people of Israel, but the, the, the people, the Philistines, they were, they were seafarers, which meant they were very active in trade taking things from there to other places, bringing things back. You really can't see the, the Mediterranean Sea here. But they were active in all this, which meant they were able to import instruments of war, chariots. They were able to bring horses from other places. They were able to bring armaments from other places and very likely even bring hired military, bring in mercenaries to come and to fight for them. And so they were gaining power and they were gaining a military edge, a technology edge over the people of Israel. So the, now, what you've got is we had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and, and soldiers, and they're, they're gathered at Michmash. You can see that up here. I didn't, I didn't circle anything. I don't know if my little... Yeah, you can't even see the little red light on the map. But you can see Michmash up here. Jordan River's over here. A lot of people have fled. A lot of people hiding. Jerusalem, you don't even need to worry about that. There's Gibeah. Uh, Gilgal is over here. I, I meant to put a dot on here, but Gilgal is over here, uh, closer to the Jordan River, above Anathoth. That's where Gilgal's going to be. And so this is the area kind of in, the, in Benjamin and in, in, in Judah, this area, wilderness area, is where all this is taking place. And so what's happened is that when this large gathering, this large army shows up, intimidating army, a lot of people head for the hills. They go find holes, caves, whatever they can hide in. A lot of them take off. They go across the Jordan River trying to get out of what is going on. The Philistines have come they completely outnumbering, completely outnumbering the 3,000 troops that Saul has and any that might be on their way to fight. Now, you think this is, this is about as bad as it can get. No. Because if we jump down to verse 19, I know this is out of order, but if we jump down to verse 19, we read, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for a plowshare 
and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, look at this, on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is bad news. All they had to fight this highly advanced army, and in that time it would be highly advanced, all they had to fight with was their, their farm tools, their axes, their sickles, any, any sticks they could sharpen, anything. That's all they had to fight with. And so the odds now have just been stacked so greatly against Israel that there, there really is, in most people's minds, no hope of victory. The best thing I can do is, is run and hide. Now, Saul has gone to Gilgal. Why has he gone to Gilgal? Because Samuel had instructed him in chapter 10 that in times of crisis, he's to call out Samuel, he's to go to Gilgal, and Samuel within seven days is going to show up that they will offer a sacrifice, they will seek the Lord, and then they will act. That's the pattern. That's that's what Saul is supposed to do. And so here's what we see going back now to uh, verse 8. He waited, this is Saul, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Saul's in Gilgal. He's in the place where he was was crowned, chosen as king, set apart as king king he is in a place where sacrifices are offered to god and what's happening is every day every hour every minute saul's looking around and he's seeing the backsides of soldiers who are leaving they're going back home they don't want to fight this war they don't want to go up against that overwhelming uh, you know philistine army that's just going to kill them all they have no desire to endure that. So they're, they're leaving by the hour with no end in sight. And it says that, that Saul waited seven days. Now, the, we, we measure time a little differently. They measure it by sunset. And so he probably waited till sunset on the seventh day. And it, it's just getting bad. By the next morning, he may not have any troops. And so he decides he needs to act. He doesn't wait for Samuel to come. In desperation and in fear, Saul made a choice. He offered the sacrifice himself. Now, I think we mentioned this earlier in this series, that there was a distinct difference between priest and prophet, the the religious aspect, and and the kingship. There was a division there. There was a a role that the the prophet, the priest, would, would carry and a role that the king would carry. And what, what Saul has done now is he stepped over that line and he's assumed the role of priest. And that wasn't his responsibility. I know we look at it and we go, but, but it's a desperate situation. Someone had to do something. So Saul stepped up and did something. 
He felt, as many of us do in times of crisis, that the end justifies the means. Somebody's got to act. Even though I know I'm not supposed to do this, it seems like I don't have any other choice but to do this. And then in verse 10, this is what it says. And as soon as he had finished, as soon as he had finished, as soon as he would finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said to him, what have you done? Had Saul waited just a few minutes longer, just an hour longer, had he held on just a, a little bit more, the story of Saul's life would not be downfall. If any of you are involved in sports, I play a little golf. I used to play football. Um, I don't do that anymore, which is obvious. You probably look at me and tell, well, he never ran track, and that's true. But in golf, there's a thing that can happen. It can happen to amateurs like me. It can even happen to professionals. And that is, they can be going along really, really well, and everything looks really, really good, and then all of a sudden the wheels fall off. It's just everything, you, you can't hit a shot. It's like you've never played golf before. In one moment, you're Phil Mickelson or Tiger Woods, and the next moment, well, you're Charles Barkley. And if you, it's, worth, it's worth looking online at the video of how Charles Barkley swings a golf club. Okay, it's just, it, it's just gone. And this is what's happening right now to Saul. The wheels are literally falling off his kingship. Because he couldn't hang on a little bit longer. And he, took, he did something that he knew he shouldn't have done. And I wonder if Saul had any idea. He doesn't appear to. Of what he'd unleashed in his country of the future that he had just set into motion for himself it didn't seem to because it says he he went out to he went out to greet Samuel hey he went out to greet him matter of fact that word greeting also means to bless he went out to bless Samuel as Samuel came up and Samuel looks at him, and he says what many of you have said to your kids and grandkids. What have you done? You have no idea the line you just crossed. You have no idea how much this decision you made today is going to cost you and your family and your people. You just don't know. And some of you know exactly how that feels. Because you've had that moment in your life after you've made this decision, after you've made this choice, where you've said to yourself, what have I done? What have I done? 
That's where Saul is, but he doesn't realize it. And Saul said, here's here's Saul's answer. When I saw the people were scattering and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Three factors, Saul says, led to his decision. The soldiers were deserting, Samuel was delayed, and the Philistines were gathering in a massive force. And what Saul said is, with my back against the wall, I made this decision. And what his decision was, is he abandoned faith, listen carefully, and he chose religion. Listen to me. He abandoned faith. And he chose religion. What do I mean by that? Saul did not understand the purpose of this sacrifice. He saw this sacrifice as a way to manipulate God. A way to get God to to do what he wanted him to do. That wasn't what it was about at all. The sacrifice was about praising and blessing God the sacrifice was about remembering God the sacrifice was about seeking God and asking God God what is it that you want me to do instead he did what he thought he had to do not remembering the God who could do far more than he could ever do the God who had already shown himself as powerful He didn't remember the God who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He didn't remember the God who parted the Red Sea. He didn't remember the God who drowned all the Egyptian soldiers in the Red Sea after they'd gotten safely through. He didn't remember how God provided for them in the wilderness. He didn't remember how God brought the walls down around Jericho. He didn't remember what God could do. The only thing he was thinking is, what can I do? Let me warn you right now, don't be in that place in your life. Because if you do, you'll operate out of fear and you won't operate out of faith. So what were going to be the results of this decision? Let's quickly look at this. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. That's actually a little mild. Um, My guess is the finger would have been wagging. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord had commanded you. And Samuel, let me paraphrase this, Samuel left. He just walked away. Samuel arose and he went from Gilgal. He just walked away. After dropping that bomb, he left. What he was telling Saul was, the decision you made today is significant. 
It will end your kingdom. Had you been faithful, had you stayed the course, have you chosen faith rather than fear, God would have established your kingdom forever. Now look what you've done. Look what you have made of it. God is choosing somebody else. And he's choosing not a perfect man, because if you know the story, you know about David. Not a perfect man. But he's choosing a man after God's own heart. And this to me is is profound because none of us is perfect. But we need to understand this. God is not looking at our performance. He's looking at our hearts. There are a lot of people who can fake it. A lot of people who can put up a good exterior. A lot of people who can sell a lot of books. A lot of people who can can get their name up in marquees. There are a lot of people who can do a lot of great things. But God's always looking at the heart. Saul's heart failed the test. So God said, I'm going to choose someone else. And it says that the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. In other words, the people who had still gathered there were going to go try to join with what was left of the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. After everybody had left, About 600 left. About 600 remaining. In verse 16, And Saul and and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed at Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines had camped at Michmash. And and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah uh, to the land of Shual. The other turned towards Beth Horon. And another company turned towards the borders uh, that looks down on the valley of Zeboam. Toward the wilderness. And so our story kind of ends in a sad cliffhanger. You've got this massive army. You've got perhaps an army of as few as 600 men remaining with Saul. And you've got this bomb that Samuel has just dropped into Saul's lap. So what takeaways do we have from this? Let me share them with you very quickly this morning, and hopefully they'll help. First of all, when God is a calling on your life, it's foolish to stay put and relive past glories. Here's what Saul didn't do. When the Philistines were harassing, when the Philistines were oppressing, Saul did nothing. His son Jonathan did, but Saul did nothing. For at least a year. Nothing. He gathered 3,000 men. Maybe he was training those men. But did he use those men for No. He didn't use any of them. He did nothing. And too many people spend their time looking into the past, reliving the past, staying right where they are when God said it's time for us to move forward. What Saul had been instructed to do was to save his people. What Saul chose to do was nothing. Secondly, when confronted with great challenges, you can choose faith over fear. You have the choice 
as to how you approach the circumstances of life. You can choose faith. You can choose trusting in a God who is able over fear. Third, your enemy may seem great, but listen, folks, God is greater. God is always, always, always greater. You have no problem, no challenge, no foe in life that God is not greater. And finally, when you choose your will over God's will, that choice always has consequences. When you choose to do what you want to do over what God wants to do, it always has consequences. They may not be as severe as those of Saul, but there are always, always consequences. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth today, and may it speak to our hearts today and as we move forward. Lord, I pray that whatever it is that you've laid on our hearts, whatever challenge, whatever decision we need to make, that, Lord, uh, it will become abundantly clear to us and that we'd be willing to take that step and meet that challenge to abandon fear and choose faith. Lord, I pray for those who need to do that right now. They've tried to live their lives on their own, doing things their own way, living in their own strength by their own wisdom. And, Lord, Time and time and time and time again, they find themselves running into walls and falling flat on their face. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit will lead them to choose a better way, the best way, and that is to follow Jesus. It's not always easy, and it? it doesn't come without challenges. But Lord, we know that if we're following close behind Jesus, that we're exactly where you want us to be. Lord, for those who need a, a church home, a place to come and belong, a place to come and serve, a place to come and grow, a place to come and learn how to reach out. Lord, if you're leading people to come be a part of this church, and lay it on their hearts this morning. And Lord, if you're just challenging someone to make that personal decision, whatever it might be, maybe today, Lord, to be a day of decision for them. And so, Lord, we just turn all this over to you right now. We ask that your spirit would move in this place and in our hearts and minds and lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.